Good morning, everybody. I'm still getting used to the microphone, like reverberating through the room. So uh, thanks for bearing with me last time. And here we go this morning. Let's uh, start with prayer uh, and then we will get going. My heart is steadfast, O God. I will sing and make melody with all my being. Awake, O harp and lyre, I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great above the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth, that your beloved ones may be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand and answer me. Father in heaven, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the people that are here. Please send your Holy Spirit to illumine your word uh, and to set apart what I say to your purposes, Father, and that you would receive the glory only and that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. All right. Week two for the Psalms. So last time we were going really fast. This time we are going to slow down just a bit. Uh, we're going to look at two Psalms in particular. And this is, we're going to go into a little more personal stuff now. The Psalms are for you. We're going to do this in two parts. Part one will be the hard stuff. Uh, the hard stuff will be the imprecatory Psalms. So how are we going to deal with the fact there's pretty serious curses uh, levied upon people in the Bible or invoked in the Bible. And then the other one are Psalms of Lament, and I picked the absolute most difficult one, I think, in lots of people's estimation, which is Psalm 88. We'll get to that in a bit. Uh, one uh, quick correction. Last time I was answering a question, I said the answer was in the uh, book of Samuel. It's actually in the book of Kings. So the exile of Israel and Judah as they're leaving uh, is not in Samuel, it's in Kings. So I just wanted to let that uh, correct myself there. All right, so here we go. Uh, so I would like to start not in the Psalms, rather, but in Philippians to, to frame this. Um, if you'd like to turn in your Bibles, you're going you know, to look up Psalm 109 and Psalm 88. Keep a thumb in Psalm 137. Uh, the rest of the references are there. You can either follow along with me, or if you're really quick, you can turn, uh, turn and follow them. But we're going to start in Philippians. Chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. It says this, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, Rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So Paul wrote this when he was in prison. That should kind of frame what we're about to talk about. And so the question is, if Paul is telling us rejoice in the Lord always, and that always includes the whole gamut of all of our kind of emotional states, the goods, the bads, the highs, and the lows, how do we actually do that? Paul tells us to do it. How? Uh, and so I'm going to point to a couple of those things, and I'm going to use that as a, as a frame. How do we rejoice in the Lord always? How do we, in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make our requests known to God. And then uh, we're going to end where we start. So somebody keep me honest if I don't do it. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. How do we do that? Let's turn to Psalm 109. I'll give you a second or two to get there. Psalm 
So if we're talking about prayer and supplications, some of those supplications are in the context of I don't feel very well. There is some life happening to me right now and I need to deal with it in some way. We're gonna watch David do that practically right out here and then we're gonna talk about why this is so difficult and some of the things that are around it or surround it, some of the, the issues raised up here and hey, can I even say these words? Let's take a look. Psalm 109. To the choir master, a psalm of David. Be not silent, O God of my praise, for wicked and deceitful mouths are opened against me, speaking against me with lying tongues. They encircle me with words of hate and attack me without cause. In return for my love, they accuse me, but I give myself to prayer. So they reward me evil for good and hatred for my love. Appoint a wicked man against him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is tried, let him come forth guilty. Let his prayer be accounted as sin. May his days be few. May another take his office. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children wander about and beg, seeking food far from the ruins they inhabit. May the creditor seize all that he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his toil. Let there be none to extend kindness to him, nor any to pity his fatherless children. May his posterity be cut off. May his name be blotted out in the second generation. May the iniquity of his fathers be remembered for the, before the Lord. And let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. Let them be before the Lord continually, that they may cut off the memory of them from the earth. For he did not remember to show kindness, but pursued the poor and needy and the brokenhearted to put them to death. He loved to curse. Let curses come upon him. He did not delight in blessing, may it be far from him. He clothed himself with cursing as his coat, may it soak into his body like water, like oil into his bones. May it be like a garment that he wraps around him, like a belt that he puts on every day. May this be the reward of my recusers from the Lord, of those who speak evil against my life. But you, O God, my Lord, deal on my behalf for your name's sake. Because your steadfast love is good, deliver me. For I am poor and needy, and my heart is stricken within me. I am gone like a shadow at evening. I am shaken off like a locust. My knees are weak through fasting. My body has become gaunt with no fat. I am an object of scorn to my accusers. When they see me, they wag their heads. Help me, O Lord my God. Save me according to your steadfast love. Let them know that this is your hand. You, O Lord, have done it. Let them curse but you will bless. They arise and are put to shame, but your servant will be glad. May my accusers be clothed with dishonor. May they be wrapped in their own shame as in a cloak. With my mouth, I will give thanks to the Lord. I will praise him in the midst of the throng, for he stands at the right hand of the needy one to save him from those who condemn his soul to death. That's pretty heavy. A couple of things to think about here. I'm going to skip past some of that lament at the end and the same themes you're gonna see come out when we start talking through Psalm 88. Well, one thing to, to declare right up front is that this is a Psalm of David. David was a real person that lived in time and space. He was real. He had real emotions. That what he was feeling here as he was describing it, you know, I'm trying to represent a little bit of that with my voice inflection, was real. Somebody did an injustice to him, and he's angry about it. So keep that in mind. 
Uh, real quick, we're going to talk, just I, I talked about structure last time. I wanted to point out something real quick for everybody's uh, note there. Verses 3 and verses 5, verses 3 and 5 are an example of what I talked about last time as bicola, two lines that are meant to be taken together. So verse 3, they encircle me with words of hate and attack me without cause. If you're looking at it in a single column format, the second line is intended a little bit. It's meant to be taken together. The second line there gives expounding data on the first. And so you can see that throughout this whole psalm. And there's a couple of tricola just uh, for your edification. Just wanted to point that one out. All right, we're going to zoom in on verses 6 through 20. These are the imprecations. Think of imprecations as curses. And there's some pretty good ones. Um, so, for example, appoint a wicked man against him. Um, this, is, this one actually really sticks with me. When he has tried, let him come forth guilty. Let his prayer be counted as sin. Okay. What are we supposed to make of these? There's one here that you're going to find is, um, and I'm going to tease this at the end, uh, verses 8 is actually quoted by Peter in Acts chapter 1. So this is messianic. More on that in a bit. I want to talk more about the instant or the, the, the situation that David finds himself in here. What are we as Christians really supposed to make of these? If we feel like this, and has anybody not had an injustice done to them? If you haven't, congratulations. If you have, you're normal. What are we supposed to make of these? Uh, let's take a look at Matthew 5, 43 through 46, and then following with Ephesians 6, chapter 12. This is Jesus talking in Matthew. He says this, You have heard that it was said you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be, so that, uh, you may be sons of your Father and who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. Moving on to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Okay. So we've got David cursing his enemies, praying that to God, and then you have Jesus, God incarnate, telling us, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Is the Bible at a contradiction here? No? Yes? No, it's not. Why? How do I know that? Uh, the Bible doesn't contradict itself. Scripture interprets Scripture, and so this isn't saying, hey, I'm going to abrogate this thing. Jesus isn't saying, hey, this, that, that, what you saw in the Old Testament, we don't do that anymore. That's not what he's saying. What he is saying is actually love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And so therefore, what do I make of this? What's going on here exactly? Well, let's take another closer look. If you look at the main theme for what these are saying, David is explaining that these things are happening to him and the wicked man is doing these things to David. And so therefore, God wants, or David wants God to treat this man how he is treating David. Appoint a wicked man against him, let an accuser stand at his right hand. So David's being accused by this guy. God wants him to be accused in turn. May his days be few, may another take his office. So he, I want this guy out of here. He wants me gone, I want him gone. May his children wander about and beg, seeking food far from the ruins they inhabit. He's probably trying to disenfranchise David, make the same thing happen to him. Okay, 
That's the main theme. This actually does follow a pattern of scripture. God has promised that certain things are going to happen or certain things have happened as a pattern of history. More than the, the certain things are gonna happen in just a second. So if you look with me into 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 32 and 33. If you recall the account, what happened is Saul was told by Samuel, go and slaughter the Amalekites, every single one. The judgment of God is upon them, go execute it. So Saul does that, but what does he do? He keeps the king alive and he keeps the best of the livestock. Oh, it's a sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal, right? Well, not quite. So what does Samuel say to Saul? That to obey is better than sacrifice? And then how does he handle Agag, the king of the Amalekites? He does this in verse 32. Then Samuel said, bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Another example is in the book of Judges chapter 1. What happened here is you've got the cycle of righteousness and unrighteousness, and you have oppressor and oppressor on Israel. In this case, it's Adonai Bezek. Adonai Bezek is finally captured, and they do justice to him. And this is what that justice looks like. In verse 6, Adonai Bezek fled. But they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem and he died there. You could think for a second, all right, well, this looks an awful lot like the concept of karma. No, that is not what we're talking about here in the slightest. What we're talking about here is that God is using his people to execute judgment on those that justly deserve it. And there are other places where people deserve justice and God gives them non-justice. So the concept of karma, the whole Bible over, is not there. So just want to address that real quick. Lastly, the, the trump card I'm going to throw down on this is Psalm 137. You know, by the way, I've had some atheists throw this psalm in my face a couple of times, so if you don't know it's here, you'll know now very soon. Uh, basically, I'm going to summarize this, and then I'm going to read the problematic part, as it were. Uh, so Israel has been exiled. Israel's gone. They're defrayed across of Assyria, and Judah is now exiled, and they're in Babylon. They're lamenting the fact they're in Babylon. They're being tormented by the Babylonians, and the Babylonians are like, hey, why don't you guys sing the songs that you sang in Judah? Well, sing one of those for us. Come on. And so they lament about that here, and they ask this question in verse 4 of God. How long shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I don't remember you. If I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of uh, Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. How many people knew that was in the Bible? Some, yep. Anybody ever been hit over the head with an atheist, by an atheist with that verse before? Yep, I have too. 
what's, what's going on here is this, hey, guess what? The Bible tells you that it's cool to take your enemy's children and smash them. Is that what it's saying? No, it's not what it's saying. What this is saying here is if you look in Isaiah chapter 13, verse 16, this is a long set of prophecy that Isaiah is giving against Babylon after Babylon or knowing that Babylon would take Judah into captivity and be used as an instrument of the judgment of God against Judah and his people for their wickedness. Isaiah is prophesying before any of this ever happens, this of the Babylonians in chapter 13, verse 16, their infants will be dashed in pieces before their eyes, their houses will be plundered, and their wives ravished, speaking of the Babylonians. And so what is going on in 137, Psalm 137, isn't that they're going, you know, it's cool if we just, you know, smash Babylonian children. Rather, they go, we remember that the word of God says you guys would be a judgment against us, and for your wickedness, God is going to judge you, thus saith the Lord. So that's what's going on here, and that's kind of what um, is, is going on in Psalm 109. David is basically saying, look, Lord, I know you judge wicked ones. Do it. And that's kind of what he's saying. Well, now, how do we know that David isn't trying to just get revenge on these people by appealing to God, okay? Uh, let's consider the account of David and Nabal and Abigail. Look in 1 Samuel chapter 25. I'm not going to read it, but it kind of goes like this. David is running from Saul. David is tired and hungry, and he has been protecting people from raiders that are in that region, and he goes to Nabal and his servants, or really Nabal's servants, and says, can you feed my men, please? They ask Nabal, and he says, no. Who is David? I'm not doing this. Nabal is not a nice guy. So what does David say? He goes, I'm going to go fix this problem. Tells his men to arm themselves, and he's going to go kill everybody. God himself, through Nabal's wife, Abigail, prevents David from sinning by committing revenge. And so Abigail loads up donkeys with provisions, takes it to David, and says, my husband's a fool. Take this. Everything's okay. That's a really rough paraphrase. But you see what's going on here. Is David going to go and get revenge? And is he listing these things? This is what I'm going to do. God, you do this to this guy? No, he's learned that lesson already. Of course, that's not what he's doing. So God prevents David from committing sin right there. And so therefore, what is he doing in this set of verses? Don't forget, David is praying. David is talking to God. Here's a question. Is God under any obligation at all to do these things? No. So what prevents David saying, I am really upset about this. Judge this man, Lord. That is David expressing himself before a holy God and saying, Lord, I can't deal with this. You do it. You can kind of see that if you look in verses 1, 4, and verse 26. That, um, that proves that David is speaking to God. David is putting his faith in God. David is not going, Lord, I want you to just do vengeance for me. So what's going on here? Like I said, this is a prayer. The model to be followed here is that if David is not going to just go and exact revenge, rather, 
David is going to pour out his soul before a holy God and be real with him. And oh, by the way, some of the things on, uh, in here, for, uh, for example, verse... I hate it when I lose my place. When he says, let another take his office there in verse 8, that's messianic prophecy. That is prophesying, and Peter quotes this in the, um, in the first part, or in the chapter 1 of Acts. Peter quotes that as, this was about Judas. And so David, in his absolute, um, in his terrible state where he's angry and he's in anguish, God is using him in that bit of suffering, not only to pray and to show us a model for, prayer, for real prayer, but also to prophesy uh, about the coming of Jesus and the events afterwards and what to do about it. Keep that in mind. We'll talk about that in a second. So now, is it right for us to appropriate those words? Kind of, yes. But keep in mind what we talked about at the very beginning of this section where we're looking at uh, Matthew chapter 5 and Ephesians chapter 6. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities in this present darkness. That should govern our attitude. So realize that when we're saying these things, or if we say these things, we must first pray for our enemy's conversion. Because God is going to be, remember in Matthew 5, God sends rain on the just and the unjust. Some of these people are pre-converted. Think of Saul, who became Paul. I'm pretty sure people were trying to call down imprecations on the murderer Saul, and then God had a use for him. Keep that in mind. Should we pray for our enemies? Like Jesus says, yes. But realize also that our struggle isn't against the person. What is making that person do whatever the injustice is, is sin. Think about that for just a second. And so if we're invoking an imprecation or a curse, uh, and I'm gonna borrow this from Dr. Godfrey, there is no strong enough imprecation against those rulers, principalities, authorities, whichever version of the Bible we're looking at, that are actually the agents of Satan that will be judged at the end of the age. So there is no strong enough imprecation for those people. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, if, any, if no one has any love for, or 1 Corinthians or Galatians, if no one has love for the Lord, let him be accursed. So at the end of the age, we're going to stand up and cheer. Yes, Lord, condemn the wicked. Condemn the evil one. Right now, though, what we're supposed to do is pray for the conversion of our enemies. But it doesn't prevent us, though, from properly going, Lord, I'm having a hard time with this. This is wrong, and it is. And so how do we appropriate these words is we turn them and say them to God because he can handle it. And even if we are sinning, and you can potentially accuse David for, uh, of sinning here, in his sin, God is graceful to him and use him, uses him to write scripture and to prophesy about Jesus. You're going to hear that again in just a second. I'm going to move on now to Psalm 88. On the, uh, on the order of hard ones, this is another one. I'll, you'll see that in a second. But now we're talking about Psalms of Lament, and it's just, God, bad things are happening. Well, what am I going to do about it? I'm going to explain about it, and here we go. Psalm 88. A song, a psalm of the sons of Korah to the choir master, according to uh, Mahalath Leonoth, a mascal of Heman the Ezraite. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. 
Let my prayer come before you, incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your wares. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. You saw when David was lamenting at the end of Psalm 109, it kind of ends on an up note. Lord, I trust you. This one doesn't. That's why this is one of the most difficult ones to consider. A brief structural note about this one. There's three strophes or stanzas in this one. Number one, uh, the first one is uh, verses one through seven. The next one is eight through 12. And the last is 13 through 18. And you can kind of see that there is definitely a split of subject between those three. Remember also, this is from book three. The theme is the king's crisis over God's promises. This is a crisis of faith that's going on here and it's plain in the text. Um, Yet, you're going to see through this thing that God is faithful. And you see that before the text of the psalm even starts. Take a look at the title, which remember, as I told you, those are in the oldest Hebrew manuscripts we have. In the title, we get the author of the psalm. It's Heman the Ezraite, who is one of the sons of Korah. So who are those guys? He's not David. So who are the sons of Korah and who is Ethan, or uh, Heman, I should say? There's a little disagreement on who Heman is specifically. It doesn't necessarily matter who he is. It matters a lot, though, where he comes from. So the sons of Korah were the descendants of the man Korah who rebelled against Moses during the Exodus. So if you look at Deuteronomy, or I'm sorry, in Numbers chapter 16, you get that account. He basically goes, you know what, we're blessed too, not just Moses, and so we get to do what we want just like Moses does too. Long story short, Moses says, get away from those guys. If they die like any other man, then Nothing wrong is happening here. If, however, God does something, then they are wrong, and God has chosen Moses rather than Korah. People separated themselves, and the ground opens up and swallows Korah alive. It says he went down alive to Sheol. That's who Korah was. And these guys are his descendants, so how is God faithful here? Consider Deuteronomy chapter 24, uh, verse 16. 
Basically that says, and this is God's law, it says, fathers shall not be put to, death because, put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. What you are seeing here is that Korah's descendants did not get judged in perpetuity because of what he did. God is showing that he is faithful to what he says in his law. If he says fathers will not be put to death for what their children do and children will not be put to death for what their fathers do, then he means it and God not only means it, but he shows it to us right here. That descendants of that man who was judged and brought down alive to Sheol are used to write scripture. Think about that for a second. It's the first way we see that God is faithful in this psalm of pretty deep lament. All right, so what is Heman's situation? He is likely uh, experiencing an illness and um, so bad that he is suffering and he is either convinced that he is gonna die or he's in the process of dying and it is a pretty serious um, set of circumstances that he's in. If you look in verse 15, it says that he's experienced this from his youth. This has been happening for a long time. So what's his reaction to this situation? You can kind of see that in, typified in verses 3, 6, and 7. Verse 3, his soul is full, full of troubles. My life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. Not only is he going to die, he thinks he is damned or that he will cease to exist, like utterly cease to exist. That's what he's saying. Uh, does it make a difference here how expressive, he, he, excuse me, how expressive, expressive he is? Yes. He's asking, God, are you going to leave me here? Are you going to allow me to cease to exist, um, to go to Sheol? A brief aside on Sheol. Um, if you look at what that meant, we have a much more developed um, theology of the afterlife as New Testament believers. So we believe in what's called a doctrine of progressive revelation where we learn more throughout the whole totality of scripture. And so there are those that think that in this time, this man at the time of his writing really did think that when he died, he would be dead and or annihilated. Some think that, particularly C.S. Lewis thinks that. There are those that disagree. Calvin's one of them, Spurgeon's another, and uh, another um, theologian I consulted on this, uh, Gerhardus Voss, a Dutch theologian, all disagree. Um, they point to Old Testament scripture, and they have other things to say about it, which I'll uh, read in a second. But they per, uh, point to 1 Samuel 28, which is the account of Saul calling up the dead Samuel with the medium. Why would he even try to do that if he didn't believe that someone was alive after they died? First question. Um, Psalm 139 and Psalm 133 both talk about life everlasting. So that concept is there. So if that concept is there and they at least understand it a little bit, then why is he saying this? Uh, Calvin says this. He says, I, however, in contrast to those who think he's going to be dead and gone, think that he rather, he, Heman, rather gave utterance to those confused conceptions which arise in the mind of a man under affliction, that he had an eye to the opinion of the ignorant and uninstructed part of mankind. It's a, he also goes on to say that sorrow overmastered him as to allow unadvised words to escape from his lips. Spurgeon says this, he's, uh, he, Heman, is thinking only of the present and not of the last great day and urges that the Lord would have 
uh, one the less to praise him among the sons of men. Meaning, God, don't kill me because I can't praise you when I'm dead. The thought there is that he is thinking about the old ways of the people that they dispossessed in uh, Israel, the pagan religions, rather than the concept that they should have already had, that God is your salvation for unto life everlasting. So, no, we don't necessarily, the psalm isn't teaching that there is a Sheol and that Sheol means the place of the dead, you die and they're dead dead, or that everyone goes to a hell place. That's not what this is saying. What it is saying it is an illustration of just how bad he feels, that his pain is real and it is deep because he is hurting so badly that he takes his eyes off of God and his knowledge of what's going on there and what ought, he ought to be meditating on and thinks, I am just going to go to the grave and that will be all. That's where his mind goes. He's hurting that badly. So therefore, why the graphic description of this suffering? Keep this in mind, just like with David and his cursings, even in this pain, what is Heman doing? He's praying. Let my prayers, this is verse two, come before you, incline your ear, God, to my cry. That's good news. Here's why. God has a purpose in our suffering. This is one of the second ways that we're going to see that God is faithful in this psalm that ends on a serious downer. Calvin calls Heman the prophet. Why? It's because it's a messianic psalm. Why is it a messianic psalm and where is it? So think about this one. Listen, verse 7. Your wrath lies heavy upon me. This guy just feels that the wrath of God is upon him, right? The wrath of God isn't actually upon him, but who bore the wrath of God on our behalf? Christ did. It says in two places here, in verse 8 and in verse 18, you have caused my companions to shun me. In verse 18, you have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. What happened to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane all the way to his crucifixion? The disciples scattered. That's what this is talking about. So just like David in his anguish and cursing his enemies, Heman is in anguish because of his own suffering and pain unto death, and he is prophesying about Jesus Christ. Even when Heman himself forgot about eternal life, God is using him to foreshadow Jesus Christ. So we see God's faithfulness in that way and a couple other ways, just to, just to say it, God's, uh, our suffering is never in vain. So now look at James chapter one, where James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If for no other reason, that is what our suffering is for, is to make us more like Christ, that have steadfastness and to be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Spurgeon also says this, which I found pretty helpful. He says, God never placed a Joseph in a pit without drawing him up again to fill a throne. That he never caused a horror of great darkness to fall upon an Abraham without revealing his covenant to him. And never cast even a Jonah, 
pretty good uh, disobedient prophet, right? And never even cast Jonah into the deeps without preparing the means to land him safely on dry land. So the purpose for our suffering, that God will actually uh, redeem it for his own purposes. And oh, by the way, Jesus suffered in our place and can identify with our suffering. Hebrews chapter 4 Verses 14 through 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Also in Isaiah 53, verse 3, He, Jesus, was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. So God shows his faithfulness in that he redeems the suffering. He shows that he's faithful because a descendant of a terrible sinner who was judged bodily now writes scripture because God said that I'm not going to punish the sons for the father's crimes and he's using this in this man's anguish to prophesy about Jesus Christ, who understands our suffering at every point. All right, so now what do we as Christians, or what are we supposed to know and do? How should we respond to these Psalms? Well, first of all, remember that the scripture's authors were real people. They had real emotions, and God used those to communicate his inerrant and his infallible word in their sufferings that were real. Like these aren't like high and mighty people. These are real sinful men who are writing this, just like us. Granted, they were inspired by the Holy Spirit, but they're just people. That should be pretty encouraging. Also, are you angry? Are you hurt? Are you despondent? Have you been wronged? Cry out to God in prayer. And can you use these words? Oh yeah, you bet you can. Even if you do it in a sinful way, I don't advocate that, but better to talk to God with those attitudes than to heap that upon somebody else. Believe also that God is faithful because of the example in his word, and then use the Psalms to obey God's command through Paul in Philippians 4, which said, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests, whatever they are, that's my addition, be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So with that said, uh, I, can, I can do one of two things. One, uh, I can play Psalm 30, which is a pretty good encapsulation of a lament and a rejoicing. And it, it, with the music, you get a little bit more of the sense of emotion there. Um, what we're hoping to do with this is take a closer look at some of these psalms to realize it's more than words on a page, but that they can actually affect us. These are real people expressing real emotion. And another angle looking at that could be some of the music that you can put to it to help memorize it and to help caption that emotional intent. So we could do that. Uh, or I could take questions. Either way, I would like to, uh, to end on time. Uh, sounds like we have a question. Yes, Mark. A quick question. Yes. Do you think these are the uh, imprecatory psalms specifically for personal use, or do you think they could be used like in congregational prayer? Mm -hmm. I'm just kind of like thinking 
you know, as we're leading the congregation in prayer, I mean, would that be appropriate or mm -hmm. uh, this is just kind of a bizarre question. It just yeah. kind of came to my mind. No, it's a fantastic question. So a couple of resources I can, uh, can um, consulted on this one say yes to that question. Um, that not doing that would be to denying the whole counsel of the Bible, the whole counsel of God, uh, and that um, even some of these things that were precatory psalms with an I, if you look at the title, it says, for the choir master, meaning that this was for a congregation to sing. And so, and I'm gonna borrow a little bit from what I'm gonna talk about in week four, which is the psalms are for us. You might not feel that way when we're saying this thing, but somebody next to you might be. And so that is our way of entering into the sufferings of the people that are next to us um, and doing that in a very practical way. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah. That's how I'd answer that question. Fantastic. Others? Yeah, uh, I think David offers a perfect explanation in Psalm 139 mm. where he talks about a number of things, but then he says, how precious are your thoughts to me, O Lord, and mm -hmm. he is then reflecting the thoughts of God. And he goes on into an imprecatory uh, segment, oh, that you would slay the wicked, O oh God. Do I not hate those that hate you and loathe those that rise against you? I hate them with complete hatred. Um, David here is showing us a perfect example of truly having a differentiation in our mind between good and evil and something that Christians don't do. It's not that David is uh, calling to war against evil, but he's uh, claiming that um, evil is a very distinct notion that if we are to think about the world and God the way God does, then we would have a deep loathing for sin. How often mm -hmm. we are inured by uh, so many uh, sins that we see common. Very good point. Dave. So um, I don't know how to exactly identify a chiastic structure, but do you, would you say um, that verses 10, 11, and 12 in Psalm 88, um, in your reading, would you say that Heman knew the answer to those questions was yes? Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the mm -hmm. departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love de declared in the grave uh, or your faithfulness in the baton? Like, so right dead center in the mm -hmm. psalm, the answer, the, he asks questions, the answer to all of which is yes in Christ. Yeah. Do I think he knew that? I'm curious. Just, uh, uh, some of the, based on what Spurgeon and Calvin would say, I think they, he should have known that in some way, but it's really uncertain exactly to what degree. So their thought is that he knew it somewhat, and he was so put upon, and he was in such anguish that he forgot it, and he's asking that honestly, having forgotten the truth. Does that kind of make sense? So his eyes are not on the truth, but rather on his suffering and his uh, anguish. And just um, 
this on. A question concerning um, the imprecatory psalms. Uh, thank you for bringing us through this. But two passages really come to mind when I'm thinking in Romans 2, mm-hmm. when the Apostle Paul says God's kindness leads you to repentance, but because of your hardness of heart, you're storing up wrath mm-hmm. for the day of wrath. Yes. Is that imprecatory? Uh, in a roundabout way, yes. So Paul does use several imprecations in his writings. Um, and talking about the day of wrath, you know, if you've got the saints under the altar anticipating the day of wrath who have been killed going, how long, O Lord, until you avenge us? Um, so, yes, there will be the wrath of God communicated on the unrighteous at the great and terrible day of the Lord. Um, so, you, long answer to the short question, I, I think you could consider that an imprecation. And, and when we as Christians pray, Maranatha, come Lord, yes. quickly. Is yes. that imprecatory? Because he's coming in judgment. It is. So in, uh, it's sort of revolutionary in the Lord's Prayer to go, um, you know, um, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, Al Mohler says that that's a revolutionary statement because you're saying not this world's order, but yours, God. I think uh, we are out of time. Let me pray. Um, and thank you all for your questions. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully bountifully with me. Yes, Father, we will sing to you, our Lord, because you have dealt bountifully with us in many ways and in mostly in Jesus Christ and in your salvation. Thank you for it. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this Sunday. And I pray, Lord, uh, that we would be able to worship you in spirit and in truth uh, in just a few moments. Thank you, Father. I ask these in Jesus' name. Amen.